Our scripture reading is from Isaiah 42, the first nine verses. This is located on page 602 of your pew Bible. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, page 602. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor any praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Do keep your Bibles open uh, to Isaiah 42. It seems as we go through the, the book of Isaiah that whenever the prophet appears to be treating matters that are too high for us, too heavy for us, matters that shake us to the very depths of our being, that at those moments the prophet pauses. He breaks off abruptly to speak to us of Jesus. We find him doing that here in Isaiah 42. Beginning in chapter 40, uh, Isaiah has announced a change of tone, a change of language, a change of pace, a change of perspective. He's looking into the very far future, very far future from his point of view and for us even today as we read what he is describing in that great chapter, announcing to us the great good news of the gospel itself, a gospel of comfort. He is going to be talking about the Messiah, but to begin with, he talks about the coming of God. A wilderness in the wilderness, prepare a way for God. Uh, make a straight a highway in the desert for our God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm is with him. And then, as if to make it very clear about whom he's speaking, we have in chapter 40 and 41 a description of the sheer immensity of God. God the Creator, God 
who shaped and formed and made everything that there is to make. The God who is outside of time and space. The God who is not contingent on anything in the, in the universe for his existence. The God who is self-sufficient in himself. The God who needs nothing outside of himself. Either to live or to satisfy him or meet a need that he finds within himself. And as we've listened to this great description of God, many of us have found questions being inserted into our minds. We've, we've had doubts perhaps exposed. We have, we have issues that we've found rise to the surface of our, of our thinking as we've listened to what it means to believe in the God of the Bible. Because what we believe about the God of the Bible is in our everyday lives constantly be, being questioned and, and uh, cons constantly being doubted and disbelieved by the society in which we live. And some of us have been affected by those thoughts. I know that because you've told me. Some of us have the infection of the world's way of looking at the book of nature. You've been infected by those perspectives. And there are things about which we've been speaking from Isaiah that are too disturbing, too unsettling, too difficult to get your mind around. Well, Isaiah doesn't apologize for any of that. And I don't apologize for relaying the message that Isaiah has given about any of that. But Isaiah and the prophets generally, like our Lord Jesus, understand that there are some things that are just too high for us to get, so, too hard for us to hold on to. We're not there yet. Our thinking is still far away from some of those great ideas. And so Isaiah does what? He turns our eyes upon Jesus. Last Sunday night we were looking at John's Gospel where Jesus is talking about some of the very high and exalted truths. Talking about the Trinity, really. He's talking about the relationship between himself and the Father. And he says in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. Literally one thing. I and the Father are one thing. Churches learn to call that one substance, one essence, one in being. I and the Father are are one thing. We can't wrap our heads around that. How can we speak about the Father and the Son and the Spirit and yet there be only one thing? I had to correct somebody yesterday uh, who, who talked about us baptizing in the name of, in three names, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I had to say to them, what does it say in the text? We baptize in the one name, one name, representing one being, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. How, how do you get your head around all that? You don't have to get your head around that this morning to be a believer. You don't have to understand the Trinity to be a believer. Jesus says to the people there in John 10, if you can't believe me for all of that, believe me for my work's sake. To become a Christian, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus and then submit your mind to be taught by him, to be teachable by him. And in time, in time your mind will be conformed to his mind. It may take a long time, but if you're teachable, 
you will be taught of God. So here's Isaiah then, speaking to these people. These people are minds have been stretched by the truth he's been teaching. These people who are thinking to themselves, God doesn't really bother with us. God is distant and remote and transcendent and so powerful and so apart from us and so up there that we cannot grasp this. All we see is the physical reality in front of us. We cannot see the perspective of God. And Isaiah says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's what he's doing here in Isaiah chapter 42. Because the big question you see that he's raised is, how does this immense God who fills the galaxies, this great God of glory, this God who created the universe and who sustains it actively in every moment and in every part, this God who's outside time, this God who is bigger than the universe, for whom the universe is a pinprick, if it's even that, in his sight. How does this God come to us? Can you imagine? It is beyond our comprehension. And here in chapter 42, we have the answer. Behold your God, chapter 40, your God will come. Chapter 42, how does he come to us? How does he come to us, this God of absolute sovereignty, this God of immensities? And the answer is, he comes to us as a servant. Now that very word, servant, is a very remarkable word for God to use as he says, chapter 40, behold your God. Chapter 42, behold my servant. He wants you to connect the dots. Behold your God, behold my servant. But you say to me, servant is such an ordinary word. A word that's used of patriarchs and priests and prophets and kings, all of whom were called the servants of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 20. Isaiah himself is called God's servant. In chapter 22, a man called Eliakim who was King Hezekiah's chief steward, is called the servant of the Lord. Chapter 37, David the king and David's successor, the Messiah, is called the servant of the Lord. In chapter 41, Israel is called the servant of the Lord. That is, Israel as a church, believing Israel, is called the servant of the Lord. You go to the New Testament and the whole church of God the people of God, as, as, as we are here this morning gathered, we are the servants of the Lord. And ministers of the gospel are servants of the Word of God, ministers of the Word of God. So when the Lord is introducing us, you see when God is introducing us to the key individual who is going to make a difference, he chooses a word that identifies him immediately with all of the people of God down through the centuries. Behold my servant. He chooses a name that links this individual with you and I sitting in this church this morning amongst the assembly of God's people. Behold my servant. Scholars have noticed this. They've noticed that sometimes this word servant has this corporate aspect of all the people of God and sometimes this individual aspect as we see it has here. 
Now I want you to notice that here it is, an individual. Behold my servant. God in the first person singular form of address draws our attention to this individual, the second person singular, my servant. It's an individual human being. It is someone who in some respects is like us. But as we shall see and as the, the picture of the servant is filled out in the chapters that follow, we'll find that this is the servant par excellence. This is the perfect servant. This is a servant who is like us. He belongs to Israel, the people of God. But he acts for Israel. He acts in a better way than Israel. He is the ideal Israel. He is the ideal believer. He is the ideal servant of God in a new, higher, fuller, bigger way who will act on behalf of his people, obeying where they disobeyed, trusting where they disbelieved, witnessing to the world where they withdrew from the world, righteous where they were unrighteous. He is the servant. He is the servant of God. Now this is important because right from the very beginning, do you see what the servant's ministry is? He is to serve God. When we use the word ministry, of course, the word ministry means servant or service. And so right away we have Jesus, the Messiah, described here as the servant of the Lord. And here we begin to see how these how these elements are beginning to come together. You see, here was the big question. There's a tension left in Isaiah's day, a tension left in the text, and the tension is this. Behold your God. So what do I see when I look for God to come? Chapter 42, I look and find a servant. Paul explains how all that works for us in Philippians chapter 2. He begins by reminding us that the one who comes is by very nature God. The one who comes to save us is equal with God. He does not count equality with God something he needs to reach out for because it's already his. He is equal with God. He is by very nature God. And what does he do? Well, he takes upon himself the form of a servant. He is found in fashion as a man. He humbles himself. He humbles himself by taking on servanthood and taking on humanity. He, emptied, he empties himself not by losing his deity, but by taking on something that he had not before, the status of a servant, as he takes on humanity. He comes to be among his brothers, his fellow believers. He comes as a believer, like us. He comes to be placed under the law of God, as Paul says to the Galatians. There he is, he is the lawgiver. There he is, he is the lawmaker. It was likely a, 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 an appearance of the second person of the Trinity who appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him the law for him to inscribe on those great tablets of stone. Here is the lawmaker, the lawgiver, and... He is found in fashion as a man. He humbles himself and comes in the form of a servant. Behold, God says. Here's this attention-getting word. 
Behold my servant. We find this throughout the Bible whenever God introduces Saul uh, to Samuel or to Israel. Behold. When Pilate introduces Jesus to the crowds. Behold your king. Echoing the words of chapter 40. Behold your God. Here we have the drum roll as we are having our attention focused on the one who comes voluntarily, who takes upon himself this position that he never had as the servant of God. He places himself under the law of God. He puts himself in the place where he's obedient to his father. He comes to obey his father, to please his father, to do all that his father gives him to do. Here is the servant's ministry. And you see how he's designated. He's designated as God's elect, my chosen. That places him alongside all those whom God has chosen. Those whom God has called to himself. Those whom God has selected out of humanity. In other words, he's one of the people of God. You can't understand the servant, the Messiah, unless you understand God's dealings with his people from the beginning of time. His own people that he calls to himself. He is Israel's hope and consolation. He is the one who comes to comfort his own people. He is God's elect. He is God's delight in whom my soul delights. God does not have a soul, but he uses this human language to describe that the very deepest part of God delights in this servant which immediately distinguishes him from all the other servants. All the other servants. This is one servant who delights him because this is one servant who will serve him totally in commitment and obedience in every part of his life. This is his deepest joy because here is his son here is his son taking on our humanity. Here is his son becoming a servant that he might serve the servants of God. And he's designated as God's empowered. I have put my spirit upon him. Here is the massive difference between God's instrument in bringing salvation to the world from the idols. He's just described the idols in chapter 41 as mere wind, using the very word for spirit, breath. Mere breath, that's, that's all they are. They're just a whiff of air. But here is this one, and the breath of God, the spirit of God, with all his power and energy is upon him. This is the Messiah. This is the one who was introduced back in chapter 11 as the one who comes from the stump of Jesse, that is from King David, and reigns as the Messiah, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The servant is the king. The servant is the Messiah. The servant is the descendant of David. The servant is the seed of Abraham. The servant is the promised one that was promised to Adam and Eve at the Garden of Eden. And he delights God entirely. Who is the servant? I've told you it's Jesus. But let me just build on that for a moment. The Greek-speaking Jews of the uh, first century referred it to all Israel, generally, corporately, they based 
their interpretation on the Greek version of the Old Testament. But Palestinian Jews had always interpreted this passage messianically, that is, of an individual who would act for Israel. And in fact, the Targum inserts the title Messiah in apposition to the word servant in verse 1. The New Testament interprets these verses as referring to Jesus the Messiah. Here is God formally introducing his Savior as a servant to his people. Behold, my servant. And when he came into the world, you'll remember that Jesus goes down to the water where John is doing his baptizing. And John looks at Jesus and he says, you know, there is, there's no sin in you. That's what he's effectively saying. You don't need to come to me. You don't have to repent. There's nothing you need to feel sorry for. There's no need for you to change. There's no need for you to be baptized by me. And Jesus says to him, we have to do this, John, to fulfill all righteousness. My father sent you as a prophet. He told you to preach repentance to Israel. I've come as one of Israel, one of the people of God. I'm identified with Israel. If Israel has to come out to the desert to John the Baptist at the River Jordan and be baptized, John, I must fulfill all righteousness. I must do everything to become like my brothers and sisters in every respect if I am going to be their savior, if I'm going to act for them. And as he goes into the waters of baptism, God the Father speaks to him audibly. They hear the voice. You are my beloved son. Taken from Psalm 2. Here is the son of God. God's beloved. Come as the king. With you I am well pleased. With you I am delighted. With you and in you my soul delights. It quotes Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Here is God using the language that he has given and he is targeting his own son who is his servant. He's in this water. He's being baptized. He's fulfilling all righteousness. He is a, he is a faithful, obedient servant of his Father in heaven in his humanity. God the Father identifies him. Behold, my servant in whom I delight. Isaiah goes on to say, I put my spirit upon him. And there as he's in the water of baptism, you remember the spirit comes upon him as a dove and rests upon him. And there in the waters of baptism, the father's delight is audibly expressed. And the father's gift is visibly bestowed upon his son. And like the Messiah in chapter 11, the servant will be passionate about justice. This word justice, we, we mustn't uh, engage in historical anachronism and read in our use of the word, which tends to be quite narrow as we use it today. This is a big word in the Bible and probably refers more to the command, the rule, the government of God, the judges, 
the judges, as you know, in the Old Testament were those men who were saviors and leaders of the people and guides to the people. And judges in that sense, he comes as the judge. He comes to bring the rule of God, the government of God, into the world. That is his passion. He wants to be, represent the Lord's truth and the truth about the Lord on the earth. He comes passionate to establish the government of God in the world. Why has the Messiah come? The Messiah has come to bring the whole world under the authority of God and in obedience to him. That's his great purpose. That's the great purpose behind the use of this word. When it's used of the blueprint that the tabernacle was built by. In Isaiah 40, when it's used of the order that God has given to the whole universe, the government of the universe. When it's used of the false claims of these other gods and they're silenced and the truth of God's sovereignty and rule are established there in Isaiah chapter 41. This is the salvation of God in its broadest sense. The Spirit has come to do justice, to put the government of God into place in the world. And so when the servant comes, what happens? God governs him. In every detail of his life, he is governed by God. He fulfills the word of God. He speaks the word of God. He does the will of God. My meat, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He is all about pleasing his father in heaven. And the servant comes and that's a servant's ministry. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The servant's ministry and the servant's manner. Look at verse 2. Because this servant comes as a king, yes, and that's echoed in, in the baptism of Jesus. He comes to rule with a rod of iron over the nations. But he comes not to establish his rule by force or by throwing his weight about, but, or by asserting his rights, he comes to act humbly. He will not cry or lift his voice or make it heard in the street. There, those phrases are often used of kings or politicians or celebrities or important people who like to make a noise and draw attention to themselves. To cry aloud here means to attract attention to oneself, to lift up his voice, and make it heard has the idea of ostentatious display. When the Messiah comes, he will not be pushy. He will not be self-centered. He will not be assertive. He will not come by showing off pomp and circumstance, splendor or boasting. Those will not characterize him. And if you look at Matthew chapter 12, there you find these very verses used, quoted in full by Matthew as he describes the fact that the Lord Jesus, as he went about healing everybody that needed healing, thousands of people being healed regularly all the time, day after day after day, he tells the crowds, don't tell anyone. He heals them and he says, don't tell anyone. Don't announce to everyone. Don't boast to everyone that I'm here and I'm doing these things. Just go off and enjoy the fact that you're now being healed. And it quotes these verses. He does not need to cry aloud. He does not need to show off. He does not need pomp and circumstance. He comes humbly to do the will of God. He acts humbly. He acts considerately. 
A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Matthew quotes that with reference to Jesus' manner. He treats the outcast and the vulnerable with gentleness, tenderness. Where there is even the smallest flicker of faith, he will not extinguish it. He will encourage it. Like the child who is promised in Isaiah 9 and the branch Messiah figure of chapter 11, God's answer to the oppression of the world is not more oppression. God's answer is a minister, a servant, an individual who is meek and gentle of heart. He acts considerately. If you're struggling with you're struggling with issues in your life, you're struggling with sin in your life, you're struggling with ideas you can't get your head around, let me say to you, Jesus will not overwhelm you. He will welcome you as you are. The bar to becoming a Christian is low, very, very low. Call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Of course, it gets higher once you get to be a teacher in the church. In a public position, we have to put it right up here because there is a responsibility to tell the truth clearly. But you just need to believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. Isn't that wonderful? The Word of God, you see, is like the ocean. If you're a toddler, you can go and you can paddle in the shallows. And if you're an elephant, and we've got one or two who'd like to be elephants here, you can swim in it, and there's still more to discover. It's one of the most remarkable things. He acts considerately. Thirdly, he acts faithfully. Look at this next verse. He will faithfully bring forth justice, that is, the government of God. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established the government of God in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. See, don't get me wrong. Jesus is considerate, he is humble and gentle and so on. But that does not mean that he is soft himself on truth. It's his teaching that's the key thing at the end of the sentence there. It's the government of God at the beginning of the sentence that he is interested in. He, he is not soft and pliable when it comes to truth. You see, we put meekness very often in the wrong place. Meekness is to be the way I deal with an individual who is struggling with one thing or another personally. I want to deal with them gently. Do you want to come down on them hard, trample them underfoot, squash them? I try to do that. I hope you try to do that in individual interactions with one another. Meekness there is fine. Meekness with respect to truth, however, means this is what you do. This truth is too hard for you to grasp. I won't tell it to you. This truth is too uncomfortable for you to hear, so I'll keep it to myself. This truth 
you might not like. So it's better if I don't say anything. We're not free to be meek about truth, because truth is truth. But we can be meek and gentle with respect to our dealings with people, one-to-one. That's the, that's the key thing. That's what Jesus was like. When, when he's facing the Pharisees, these are public figures. What does he do? He does not mince his words. He tells them the truth. I don't even know if you know the expression, mince your words, whether you know that expression or not. You don't look as if you do. In other words, he, but he, he is straightforward with them. That's what it means. Straightforward. From, shoots from the hip. I think that's an American expression. But he's also going to face difficulty. Notice that. And suffering. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he's done all that he came to do. Do you notice that? The word discouraged can be translated bruised or crushed in uh, echoing words that have been used earlier about those who are bruised and crushed. He doesn't bruise or crush others. And he is not bruised or crushed in the sense that the things that immobilize us do not immobilize him. The things that deter us, that does not mean he doesn't feel the same pressures. That does not mean that he doesn't face the same kind of resistance that we faced. But he doesn't let that keep him back from finishing the job. Let me read it to you again. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice, the government of God on the earth. Deuteronomy 4, Moses set the law before Israel. The word established is the word, the same word that's used there when Moses set the law before Israel. Here is the Lord Jesus, and he comes to bring his government, not just to Israel, but do you notice, to the earth, to the earth. And if we don't get that in our heads, the coastlands, which refer, is a technical expression, that refer to Earth's remotest bounds, the whole Earth, this message of Jesus is to get to the whole Earth. It is for the whole world. There is no other revelation. There is no other instruction. The word at the end of the sentence there, his law is Torah, teaching, instruction, guidance, revelation. There is no other teaching, instruction, guidance, revelation that the whole world needs than the word of Jesus, the law of Jesus. The law of Jesus, the servant, is the law of God Almighty. He speaks for God. He speaks as God. His word is truth. His word is law. It is the law of Christ as well as the law of God. And he will faithfully finish this task. He will get his law to the coastlands, to the ends of the earth. That's his program in this age. So when Luke is talking about Jesus on earth, he talks about what Jesus began to do and to teach. And then he tells us that what Jesus began to do and to teach, his apostles picked up and carried as his servants. And in the Great Commission, as he sends his apostles and by extension the church into the world, what does he say? He tells them to teach to the ends of the earth, to the end of the age, teach all that 
he has commanded. Jesus is still acting faithfully through his church to get the gospel to the ends of the age, to the ends of the earth, till the end of the age. So the servant's manner. And then thirdly, the servant's mandate. From verse 5, we have this great picture of God himself breaking in. Thus says God, the Lord, that is the covenant, keeping God. The one who created the heavens, stretched them out, spread out the earth, gives breath to the people on it. This one who created, stretched, spread, and gives. This one who is in an ongoing way still active in and above his creation. The universe does not act independently. God is not to be understood in deist terms as one who, like a watchmaker, created the watch, wound it up, put it down, and leaves it alone. What we call natural law is not a law to God. What we call a natural law is, in fact, God's normal way of doing things. He does things normally, normally, so that we can kind of generally count on him doing things normally, normally, and make our, you know, make our arrangements as we need to make them, based on what we observe about his normal way of normally doing things. But he is quite free to act abnormally if he wants to. What are miracles? But God just doing the same thing in a different way. He doesn't exp- a miracle does not, is not, does not expend any more power in God to accomplish than whatever power he expends in making what we see as normal happen normally. Normally. Which you could get quite confused about as you let it run. So he's the God who is holding it all together. And this God of absolute majesty mandates his servant to be two things. One, a covenant for the people. A covenant for the people. Here is, here is God on one side of a covenant agreement in which he's the one who is the promiser and he is the one who is the doer. He comes himself in his servant He comes to fulfill in his servant his side of the bargain. Here is this one, and here's here's why there is this interchange of, is this Israel or is this a singular individual? Is this Israel or an individual? And the answer we're going to find is that the individual represents Israel. The individual represents his people. God has been looking for obedience from Israel and got disobedience. God has looked for exclusive worship from Israel. And what have they done? They've worshipped idols as well. But now the servant comes. He will keep Israel's end of the bargain, our end of the bargain. He will obey where we disobeyed. He will fulfill the law where we do not fulfill the law. He will act in our place as our representative. This is Jesus' active obedience as the servant of the Lord. And ultimately, not only will he obey instead of us, he will die instead of us. He will form this new covenant in his blood. He will keep God's end of the covenant. He will obey for us. He will be made a covenant for the people, that is, for God's chosen people. And he will be a light to the nations. 
to the nations. Here is God putting in a notice in clearest terms you can imagine that the people of God are going to be extended. They're going to embrace. They're going to pull in people from all the nations of the world. Here is this missionary vision of God which Isaiah gives us in the clearest possible terms now being pushed further out. The people of God, that's who Jesus comes to die for. But the people of God are not just of that fold as Jesus explains in John chapter 10. It's not just of Israel now, but the nations. There, there are elect people out there in the nations that God is going to draw from himself. The promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled through the servant in him, all the families of the world will be blessed. He's come to be the savior of the world. He's come with this global idea of bringing, drawing these people. And what will that look like? Look what, look what Isaiah goes on to explain. Look what it looks like in this new covenant. He will open the eyes of the blind. He will bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those in darkness. The issues here, you see, are spiritual. So when Jesus healed a blind man, and when he liberated a demon-possessed person, you understand that those miracles were very physical and very visible and tangible, but they were meant to point to the reality of men and women all around us in our society and throughout the world who are blind and in bondage spiritually blind in bondage. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's the reality. And how is this mandate fulfilled of bringing light to the nations? Well, he opens the eyes of the blind. He helps people who can't see it to see it, that Jesus is the savior of the world. He, he, he liberates those who are in prison in darkness, imprisoned by this hermetically sealed darkness in which the devil keeps men and women, boys and girls who are outside of Christ. He invades the darkness. He opens the doors of the dungeons. He sets the prisoner free. That's the business that Jesus is about in the world. That is the business of the gospel. That's what the gospel was given to us for, that we would take it out to the nations and begin this work that will be culminated when Jesus, the servant who obeyed God, Jesus, the servant who now calls servants of God to come follow him and in their turn serve the living and true God until the day comes when Jesus returns again and the whole of nature and the whole of humanity in Christ come under the government of God absolutely and forever without a stain of sin. When all the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. When all his enemies are made are put under his feet. And Jesus reigns from shore to shore. See how God underwrites this. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. He's putting the world on notice that they're about to see him at work in the servant. And the passage ends with a reference to the former things. That is the things that God promised in the past that are now being declared. New things. 
This new thing particularly that God is going to do in the incarnation of God, the Word made flesh, in the salvation of the Gentile nations, the, the nations of the world, now it is clear. And Isaiah is announcing it so that when you see it happening, you know that Isaiah speaks for God. That's where we are today. That's where we are in salvation history this morning. All around the world. Watching our webcast this morning, there are people in China and in Europe and in South America. We've had reports back of the growth of God's work in parts of the world that would astound us. Jesus, the servant, through his servants, he's identified so closely with us as his servants. One of us, he is our elder brother. He became like his brethren in every respect that he might become our savior. And now Jesus completes his work through his servants as we go out with the gospel in our day-to-day -day life as we send those who are called out to the ends of the earth with the gospel. As we appoint those to preach to us as servants of the Lord, the gospel gets out to the world. Well, that's the picture that's painted here. Behold your God. How do we see him when he comes? We're expecting. We're expecting to be overwhelmed by the sheer immensity, majesty. And here's the surprise. Behold my servant. Isn't that remarkable? That the Son of God should humble himself, take our flesh, become a servant, and in turn teach us that the highest, noblest calling that we as human beings can have is to be the servants of the servant of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would uh, open our eyes to see, our hearts to embrace, our wills to obey, that Jesus Christ might be Lord of our lives, to the glory of your name. Amen.